Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, I'm joined by Polly Atkin. Polly is a poet and non-fiction writer. Her first poetry collection, Basic Nest Architecture, was followed by Much With Body, a PBS Winter 2021 recommendation and Laurel Prize 2022 long listy. She's also published three pamphlets, Bone Song, Shadow Dispatches and With Invisible Rain. Her biography, Recovering Dorothy, The Hidden Life of Dorothy Wordsworth, is the first to focus on Dorothy's later life and illness. Polly's memoir, Exploring Place, Belonging and Disability, Some of Us Just Fall, was published in summer 2023. She's taught English and creative writing at QMUL, Lancaster University, and the universities of Strathclyde and Cumbria. In 2019, she co-founded the Open Mountain Initiative at Kendall Mountain Festival, which seeks to recenter voices currently at the margins of outdoor mountain and nature writing. In 2022, she became a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She works as a freelancer from her home in Grasmere in the English Lake District. Welcome, Polly. Thank you, Dan. So lovely to be here. And it's Dr. Polly. (laughs) Very aware that you're not using that. And nearly all the females that do have doctorates done PhDs on my podcast don't put that in the bio. So I'm just adding that in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. I did use it for a long time for exactly that reason. But because I've stepped outside from academia slightly now, I use it less, partly because I think it just confuses people. <laughs> but it is my title. So if you send me any mail, I very much expect to be Dr. Rapkin. Um, I am never miss, um, definitely not misses. And I definitely a doctor I earned that doctor you did but I suppose it could be confusing on your book when you're writing about medical but congratulations on some of us just fall what a really powerful book I've just been talking about how much I recognize from my own journey with chronic illness but how much more there was in there that I wasn't expecting we go through history through literature and I really I really enjoyed reading it and seeing those other voices that you brought in from literature as well. So thank you for that. Thank you. It was really important to me to include other people whose stories helped me understand mine. Although I realised, because I wrote the bulk of it in 2018, that actually since then there are more interesting writers and writing on chronic illness that I could have included as well. And I didn't include them all at this point so there are more people out there who are writing more interesting stuff that could have been included now well I finished your book with like a list of other books that I had to get to and even in the conversation we've just had before I press report I've got another list of books (laughs) just send them through and I'll add them to the pile (laughs) were you going out of your way to find those voices on chronic illness or did they find you in your reading A mixture. Some of them were things that I'd already found and uh, thought, this really speaks to me. Why does it speak to me? And then later realised that that person was chronically ill. So, for example, Susanna Clark, who is a a novelist who I really, really, really love. Um, Finding out after reading Jonathan Strange that 
she had experience of chronic illness to me at that time in my early 20s was really revelatory. I found that one so, so strange as well. As soon as my partner walked in when I was reading a book and I was like, what's the one book that, because normally once I read a book, I get rid of it because I just don't have the space in my small little cottage to keep them. But the one book that I kept was that one. (laughs) And I was like, now there's so much that makes sense from her writing of that fatigue and sleep deprivation and this space between awake and sleep. And and I didn't come back to writing about Piranesi, her mm. more recent novel, which I th- I think is one of, it's not directly about chronic illness, but mm. I think it's one of the few novels that I've ever read that really captures the experience of, of chronic illness in a magical, fantastical way as well. And I ended up not going back and including Piranesi because I feel like there's so much to write about that. You know, <laughs> the book would never end. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to a, another chronically ill writer about this, Laura Elliott, a, a, about this earlier in the year. And uh, we actually think that we need an essay collection. Where lots of chronically ill writers talk about their relationship with Piranesi because there's so much to say about it. And even then, I think we we wouldn't get to the end of it. I could write a whole book about Piranesi. Please do. Please do. I love your writing. I was actually looking up because I thought, well, I first came across your work through Waymaking, the um, right, the book from Vertebra. And I came to an evening in Buxton, which seemed decades ago, but I did check <laughs> when that was. And it was April 2019. And I saw you I on stage. But I mean, I suppose it was a different world back then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, the before times, you know, there does seem to me this this kind of cut off of 2019 was a different existence for me, definitely. You see, so April 2019 was actually the start of a really bad period of two and a half years of chronic illness for me. So I must have just been on the cusp of it. And when I looked at the tweet, it said how inspiring the night had been. But I couldn't go off and write in the wilds or something. I was back at my desk and this was 11 o'clock at night. I was back working as a lawyer. So, I mean, it definitely, yes, part, part, like, it's uh, relevant to them, my chronic illness. But um, yeah, it does seem, seems longer ago. Yes, it definitely does. Uh, it, uh, yeah, so a different world for both of us back then. <laughs> mm, I was trying to remember what you were speaking about that night and I'm I'm sure it was about swimming and it felt like it was quite similar to what the start of the book Some of Us Fall was and I didn't know if it was that exact piece or something similar. Yeah, it, I think it was probably a piece that was partly from the chapter in the middle where I talk more about swimming mm. and anti-nature cure um, ideas because I I was already working on that. And I think at that time in 2019, actually, I'd been trying to get an essay on that published and was really frustrated that no one would take it up. Um, because to me, there's so much writing about swimming and about outdoor swimming, which talks about it as curative, but only from a mental health perspective, but somehow extrapolates that out as well which was one of the reasons why I ended up writing this book in the particular way that I did as well, that there are so many books and so much discourse about the way that we approach the outdoors, which does rest on this idea of the nature cure. And for several years by then, I'd been trying to get work published, which unpacked that a bit and interrogated it as an idea because I spent a lot of time outdoors and gosh, 
surprisingly, I'm still chronically ill. It hasn't cured. Well, how can that be? I think you call it in your book, The Impossible Pill, I think. Yes, The Impossible Pill. If only I could lick a frog and then be magically better. Um, But none of the frogs I've tried so far have worked. So um, I think that that's not how it functions, unfortunately. And I think people get that idea, the, the kind of confusion between something being therapeutic and something being curative really muddled up in their minds. If something makes them feel a bit better, they think it's a cure when it's it's not. It's just helping you manage what's already there. Um, so, yeah, that, that was definitely what I was talking about at Buxton. <laughs> yes, I think it was. And then just so going, jumping back to your book, The Some of Us Fall, I mean, how do you describe it? It comes under nature writing, but there's so much more in that, isn't there? Yeah, so I I think of it as a kind of mix of um, memoir and nature writing and pathography, so illness writing, mm. and, and also social history, a kind of cultural history of writing about illness and disability as well, I suppose. Yes, and how did the book come about? Because you're using some of the diary entries from a long time ago was that always the plan that you would have this wonderful book in 2023 or how, <laughs> I'm guessing not um that you're a 12 year old you didn't realize that but yes how did the book come about and how long were you working on it it really started to form after my diagnosis so in uh 2014 and then 2015 I was diagnosed with two chronic incurable genetic conditions which had been making me ill for most of my life um one of them for all of my life the other one particularly since my mid to late teens and that was the i was going to say end point but it wasn't an end point it was really a, a turning point um in what i call in the book a diagnostic quest <laughs> which had been going on rather hopelessly for most of my life as i tried to work out why i was having symptoms i was having why i was experiencing life in my body in the particular way i was and i had to go back to those teenage diaries in particular because i was first very ill when i was a teenager And that ended up in a situation where I was told there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. And I was kind of creating all of my own illness and sent away to deal with it by myself. And that had been really my experience from then on as I tried to get to the bottom of it as well. I kept going round in this circle and ending up at this this same kind of point. So for me, then finding out when I was 34 that what a surprise I hadn't been making it all up or making myself ill <laughs> was both incredibly validating in some mm. ways but incredibly frustrating as well that I, I'd, I'd had another 16 years from that first point when I'd been trying to work out what was going on and I was kind of background at it but with a, a different set of information and to me I thought well what can I do with this I'm not a politician I'm not an activist I'm a chronically fatigued energy limited sick person but I'm a writer so I thought I'll write about it and see if by my writing I can change some of the narratives about this and maybe help some other people because what really shocked me when I did have those diagnoses and I thought this has taken me a lifetime to get to this point 
was realizing that that's a really common experience that across the board with different illnesses as well, not just with with my particular conditions, but something that so many people with chronic illnesses share that it takes decades. I think the average time is is a decade for a chronic illness to get correctly diagnosed. And that's just not acceptable. That's huge swathes of people's lives going past with them mostly being told that there's nothing wrong with them and that they're imagining their symptoms. And that's just not okay. And I've definitely been through something very similar when I had my years of chronic illness in that I was told that I was fine. <laughs> there was nothing wrong with me. And I mean, like it made me laugh out loud some of the things that you'd come across as well. One of the consultants that you'd seen kind of telling you, congratulations, you're fine. <laughs> Just because one test hadn't come back. But for me, I suppose when I was going through that, I absolutely didn't hear any voices of anybody going through the same. And at the time, I wasn't reading and I wasn't doing much because I was so ill. But I just wondered whether it is quite recent that you're finding that people are speaking about this or whether I just, yeah, it's been around, but we just, I haven't come across it or we haven't seen it. I think there's certainly been a dearth of it in the UK and in UK publishing and one of the reasons why so I'm talking about there about being diagnosed um, almost 10 years ago now and this book has just come out this year one of the reasons that has taken so long is not because it took me that long to write it um, but because it took me that long to get the right people to recognize Mm -hmm. that it was a story that other people would want to read and that was a real struggle a massive struggle in UK publishing, that it was seen as unmarketable, it was seen as unsaleable. And particularly the fact that I was wanting to write about the ongoingness of chronic illness and that there isn't a a kind of easy recovery. And it's really notable, um, I think, that a lot of the models that I was finding that were more contemporary models of people writing about this were published in the States. And there's much more of a um, an accepted uh, kind of rung in, in publishing that, that deals with that in the States. Um, and it just it isn't happening here. So even talking to my, my American publisher that there's an American edition coming out next year. And as soon as I spoke to them, they knew exactly where he was going to sit on the shelf amongst which other books, because there are books that are already doing that in different ways. And that just was not my experience with any UK publisher. And and what do you think the reasons behind that are? Is it that it's it just thought it was too few numbers of people that would relate? Or is it that it just hasn't got that that arc of a story in the, this wonderful triumphant ending? Because for people that are chronically ill, it just goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. Or is it something else completely? I think it's both of those things. So I think it fundamentally, there's the problem that illness narratives, writing about disability, writing about illness is seen as niche. So (laughs) the number of people who said to me in the process when I was trying to get this book published and when I was trying to get an agent and unfortunately are still saying this to me when I'm trying to get press for this book, oh, we already have someone who's doing chronic illness. (laughs) Tick that off. (laughs) Right. So you've got your one chronically ill writer. Okay, so 22% of the population in the UK, adult population, are disabled. Pre-pandemic, there was a figure that I've read that 33% 
of the UK population have a chronic illness. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not one person in your organization or in, <laughs> or in your bookshelf um, or in your publishing catalog. You know, if we're thinking about representation and diversity, you should have a lot of chronically ill writers in there. Mm. And has it been received by people that aren't chronically ill? Because I feel like I, I, it's very hard for me to talk about it objectively because it was every page I, I recognised something in it from my journey or could just really have that compassion for other things that you've gone through. But I just wondered, for people that have never had their lives touched by chronic illness, um, what sort of feedback have you had from them? It's been amazing, actually. So my two aims with the book, um, I had a kind of dual aim that I wanted to represent and reflect the experiences of chronic illness for people who have experienced it so that other people could have the experience I have when I've read some of the writers I, I talk about in the book where you go, oh, gosh, someone else has experienced that. But the other side of that was that I did want to educate people who haven't had any experience of that themselves as well and to try and make some of our experiences less mysterious to them and to try and hopefully increase understanding a bit and I have found that already I've had people who have no experience of chronic illness say to me oh I understand my friend better now and that to me means means a huge amount because I think whilst we understand these experiences that we share and that is really really important if we are to have the changes that I want to see that make everything easier for all of us then people who don't have those experiences already need to have better understanding of them and to be more compassionate and to be more sensitive to what it's like to live with chronic illness. What are those sort of changes that you were talking about I feel like you are an activist (laughs) do you want to be or not (laughs) but but a kind of a a quiet literary one (laughs) in some way and an activist with a pamphlet coming out (laughs) yeah exactly um there's uh, a song by a Canadian group that I really like which has this repeating line uh rewrite pamphlets <laughs> and I do feel a little bit like that that um, that's my activism is definitely here's a pamphlet <laughs> I don't think my teenage stepkids would know what like a pamphlet was <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but but I do think that there is a there's a power to words and it might be mm. a bit slow it might be um a bit less visible than other kinds of activism but I I do think it's a kind of activism and a kind of advocacy I think as well so I hope that my hope always is that by changing one mind you can start to kind of create a shift so some of those changes are really big practical things like changes in how we think about diagnosis so that people aren't waiting 10 years to find out that they actually really do have something wrong with them and that they're not making it up because as you said earlier in our conversation the doctor has done the six blood tests and they've all come back fine (laughs) so good news is you're good (laughs) nothing wrong (laughs) as I'm lying there unable to actually walk anywhere but yeah and and also even just recognizing that that isn't a great thing to tell people mm. you know when someone's 
there and they have the symptoms that, that have made you think that they're dying as a doctor and made them think they're dying as a patient for you to say to them oh it's great news there's absolutely nothing wrong with you at all um is not actually great news you know they know there's something wrong with them it's okay to say we don't know what's causing these symptoms at the moment but you also shouldn't give up there and i think that that's the problem is that at the moment most of our diagnostic processes give up at that point mm. Yeah, we look for a few really obvious things and then we go, who knows? It's probably aliens or maybe you're just thinking about existence wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. I only had one GP that I felt actually listened to me and it was such a revelation and it and nothing became of that. All she did was say, I'm sorry, I don't have all the answers. Do you want some antidepressants? So it wasn't the most like productive in that sense, but it was the first time that somebody had actually looked at what I, well, listened to what I was saying and said, maybe there is something in this, but we just don't have the knowledge yet. Whereas the others, it was very much, well, I've given you a diagnosis. You've got chronic fatigue syndrome, which means nothing. Um, go away and live with it or be positive I got and you might get better in 10 years that was another yeah. one <laughs> be, be positive because clearly the problem is that you as an endurance runner were not being positive enough about your existence. I didn't want to get well did I <laughs> exactly exactly um, and, oh. you know when you've had those experiences uh, as well that there's something so incredibly Kafkaesque about it because you you do realize that you're just going around in these circles with these absolutely farcical comments coming back on you um kind of saying oh well obviously you just as you say you just don't want to be well um sir there is nothing more that i want i know, to be well. I know. you only I want one thing don't you people. yeah i want nothing more than to be well that is why i am here talking to you who are clearly an absolute numpty yeah but i mean i mean i'm laughing about it now um but actually those times and i'm sure similar for you those times for me I was suicidal at points. I was absolutely felt like everybody had given up and my body was giving up. And and I really, I don't know how I got through those times. And But when I started this podcast about resilience, it was on my mind that actually the hardest times I've had were the times when I was chronically ill. And so I feel like there's so much that we can learn and share from talking to chronically ill people about how they manage I guess how, how do you feel like you've got through those times I think there's two things um really which are a key to that to me and I think one of them is sheer bloody mindedness so a kind of stubbornness of and in some ways almost some of those horrible medical experiences were useful to me because they did give me fuel that they gave me something to be angry about rather than just something to despair about because there was a lot of despair you know a huge amount of despair and that experience of feeling suicidal after after being told that there's nothing that can be done and there's there's nothing wrong with you and no one knows how to help you I think is a really really common experience um, with chronic illness too and something that isn't talked about enough, but something which kills people with chronic illness all of the time. And it's a kind of medical neglect. And, and I think we need to recognize it as that as well, that it's it's a, it's a huge medical neglect, which is killing people with chronic illness. 
and that's outrageous and i definitely have experienced those feelings myself as well um which i do touch on very briefly in in the book um but i think also i had a lot of stubbornness in wanting to actually find out what was going on um which drove me in in some ways as well that i have periods of despair of thinking i just don't have any energy to keep trying to find out what's going on here um but then as soon as i was a little bit more able to think about it again i think but i don't want to give up i don't want to do what they've told me to do and give up trying to find the answers because i was certain in myself that there was an answer and that there was something wrong with me and that somebody could do something about it um even if what i've been given to do about it isn't possibly the, the most useful <laughs> or life transforming things but but just knowing that does kind of help the other side of that is that you don't have an option really that unless you do choose to die as a response to that um your only option is to carry on and it's not a, a choice really that you make it's a necessity i wanted to live and i wanted to keep living so you have to find a way through it and that can mean different things to different people for me i think distractions are really useful so um as far as you can find them uh any kind of things that that can help you through those really awful times um are really useful um so for me that might be like binge watching sci-fi <laughs> I really I've had you yeah, down yeah. for that. I thought you were going to say reading um, something quite intellectual. No, I mean, yeah, re- reading too, but you know, I, I could I'm, never read when I was really bad. With well, th- th- this is the thing, right? So when I was a teenager and, and really ill, um, I borrowed a lot of um, kind of strange nineteen seventies Jane Austen adaptations <laughs> of people and watched all of those. So when I wasn't able to read, I was able to watch things instead. And I also watched an enormous amount of classic movies because at that point in the the 90s, there was always a classic film on BBC Two in the afternoon. So when I couldn't do anything else, I'd lie on the sofa weeping gently and (laughs) and watch classic (laughs) movies, um, which I think is a very kind of Betty Davis kind of mood. (laughs) I was just thinking you'd probably be amazing in a pub quiz because I never know any TV or films. I'm like, I need you on my team. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, but but for me, that works because I, I'm still able to watch things mm. most of the time when, when I'm that ill. But there are lots of people who who can't as well. And I'm always really aware of that, that there are people, for example, who have very severe ME who can't have any kind of stimulation yeah. at, at all. And how do you get through the, those times? Um, so one of the people who's written more recently about this, who I do include in the book, is a uh, writer and artist, Letty McHugh, who has MS and who also gets very debilitating migraines with her MS and has written about that experience of, of having to have no stimulation at all and being just alone in a, in a darkened room and what you do to get through that. And I think Letty's writing about that in her book, Book of Hours, is absolutely extraordinary and really helped me to think through what's going on in that process as well 
Um, so she writes about just really lean, almost leaning into it and going into the kind of the great emptiness and finding that actually you can kind of go through that almost like it's a kind of well um, and out the other side into into something else. And I think that's a really amazing way to think about it, that, that you still have resources even when it seems like everything else has given up on you. I think you wrote about this beautifully as well. And I loved the, well, it, it came up quite a lot throughout the book, your, how time and our perception of time changes with chronic illness. And that was definitely something that I hadn't seen written about before or thought about so much. And the same with like you've just described, that those states going into some sort of other portal or other world, I thought that was really thought-provoking when you wrote about that in your book. So thank you for that. Thank you. I mean, that's really my experience of those very strange, very intense times of extreme illness for me, of it being like another place entirely, another world entirely. And is experiencing it as hostile to to some degree, but then what do you do when you realise that that is just a place that, that you exist in? And one of the abiding themes of some of us just fall is is this aspect of ongoingness and, and the fact that chronic illness is is chronic illness because it is to do with time and it is to do with ongoingness. And for incurable chronic illnesses you know you you have them for your life so it is your life it is what travels with you all of your life or or what you travel in all of your life and I started to think of this kind of idea of the kingdom of the sick and the kingdom of the the well which has been written about so much as almost like the the city in the, the city um that they're they're kind of existences which are layered over each other and all of this time that I thought that I'd been when I was younger living in the kingdom of the well and actually I'd never been living there at all I'd always been living in the kingdom of the sick I just I just didn't know it and it accounted for some of the strange experiences I had (laughs) where I wasn't quite in the same place as other people I think. And I guess going back to the changes that you'd like to see made like that early diagnosis would have explained so much for you at a sooner point wouldn't it so that you didn't have all that time wondering what was going on if it was you or yeah why this was happening and you know I, I think about this a lot and I think there's a lot of damage that could have been undone both psychological and physical if I'd known what was going on earlier but then on the other hand would the treatment have been any better? Would it have been any more useful? I don't know. And it, it's hard to tell with my own history if knowing earlier would have made a huge difference physically. I know it would have made a huge difference psychologically, although maybe it would have caused other problems in other directions. Um, but the treatment is still not there in, in so many ways. So who knows how useful physically it would have been. But I know that now, you know, people who are in the same position now, getting help when you first need it makes such a difference, such such an enormous world of difference. 
And I really think there's no excuse for just leaving people. I was thinking about this earlier when I was thinking about resilience. So resilience can be quite a difficult word, I think, for mm. people who who do live with chronic illness. And I was thinking about why this is and linking it to to something in the book where I, I talk about vulnerability and about a, a social model of vulnerability and also thinking about recent experiences I've had as well, that there's only so much resilience that we can have as individuals which will help us when the system outside ourselves does not want to help us. You know, you can't be resilient and in in yourself um, and survive the world being on fire. That's not going to help. And the attitude that I think has emerged so dominantly through the pandemic of this idea of, of personal responsibility, that you can take responsibility for your own wellness, for your own well-being, and you have to be personally resilient and you'll be fine, while the system is trying to kill you on every level, yeah. it is is bafflingly non-functional, that we need social resilience, we need shared resilience, we need a community of care which is resilient and then helps people when they can't be resilient themselves. Um, and I think that that's so important and is something that I hope, again, helping people to think through what the experience of chronic illness actually is will help people think about. Mm. And I think like bef you were on my list of people that I wanted to talk to even before I knew about your book coming out because I felt like I followed you for years on social media and when we were told that we were coming out of the pandemic and everything was back to normal you stood out for me as a voice just reminding us that it isn't back to normal for people particularly with chronic illness that there's it, it never ends, does it? And so, yes, I just wonder, do you feel like you've been the voice standing out? Because that's what it's looked like to me, but that might just be my feed. Um, or, yes, if you could tell me a little bit about how you found this, the last few years of COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. Um, I'm really glad that I have now a geographically spread community of other disabled and chronically ill people that I talk to regularly because I think if I didn't have that and if I didn't have those and, and often those connections have been made through social media as well if I didn't have that I really would feel like the last person shouting into the void about it or maybe I would have given up taking any precautions myself earlier and wouldn't be able to talk to you now um, and I'm very aware of that as a possible outcome um, it is, it's very lonely. And something I write about in the book is this beautiful idea that Alice Wong talked about of disabled people as oracles, so disabled oracles. And there are so many people who I've seen have the same experience of me of feeling like you're Cassandra saying, please, please don't risk your health with these things. You don't know what it's like on the other side of this. You don't know what it's like in the, in the kingdom of the sick. And particularly in the early days of the pandemic, I found it very upsetting on a personal level that people were so willing to risk themselves, 
that it made me feel like no one had been listening to me, that actually everyone I know had been like the doctors who say, well, yeah, okay, you say you're tired, whatever. And they hadn't really been listening to me when I'd said how terrible things that I was experiencing were if they were so blithely willing to risk that for themselves. But then I started to think more as time went on that people just can't hold that thought in their head. And it's it's not deliberate. It's not personal. If they don't have any experience of it themselves, they just can't imagine what it would be like. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me has been to see people I know who were previously healthy learn what it's like in real time. And I don't want that for anybody, which is why I've been very vocal about keeping precautions and trying to limit the amount of infection that, that's happening and that's still going on. And the vast sways of people who are suffering from long COVID and will continue to, uh, as we continue to just allow infection to rip through the community, um, to quote someone whose name I will not mention. We don't need to mention. <laughs> Bleep that name out. <laughs> and, and, and the kind of normalisation of, of that. Um, and also with my kind of historical hat on, it's exactly what happened with the second cholera pandemic in the UK in the 1830s. Okay, not not my specialist subject, so <laughs> tell me. But, I but just... it, it, so the second cholera pandemic hit the UK in the 1830s and people were dying here, there and everywhere. It took till the 1850s for them to start to listen to the scientists who were saying, look, I think this is being spread by the water mm. and not ironically they thought it was it was being spread by miasma and also that you know poor people got it more than rich people so it didn't really matter um and the amount of propaganda against the waterborne theory um is it directly reflected in the kind of propaganda that that's that's happened with COVID-19 and it's horrifying to see and horrifying to kind of see repeated um, and horrifying to see people suffer as a result. And I, I think that's the thing that really gets to me all the time is that um, there are people whose lives are going to be changed forever who did not have to be experiencing that. And the burden of the future because of this time of neglect is going to be horrific, absolutely horrific. But nobody listens to us, so. <laughs> and do you think part of that comes back to that that idea, and it's a lovely idea, but one that I know is absolutely the opposite true, is that if I look after myself, if I'm fit and healthy and I exercise, then it's not going to be me. Yeah. I say as a fit yeah. ultra runner vegan that got very ill. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And people really do believe that they they believe that. And I can psychologically, I can understand why it is, because illness is so chaotic. As you know, we have no control over it. If illness is going to happen to you, um, it happens to you. And there is no amount of thinking it better or doing the right things that is going to make it go away. Mm. Um, ironically, what we can do with something which is an airborne infection is to avoid getting it in the first place. And that is actually quite a simple thing that we can do um, in order to avoid being ill. But 
people don't want to know that. What they want to know is that they can eat the right diet and exercise the right way and everything will just be fine. And it, it is a kind of magical thinking. And it's so pervasive in the way that we think about health in our society. And it's got worse and worse, I think, over the last few decades as, as kind of wellness culture has become much more dominant as well, that people genuinely think that they can exercise themselves out of anything um, or kale themselves out of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally just had kale for lunch. <laughs> I'm still on board with that. <laughs> Oh, I know. Yes. And it's, it's really hard, isn't it? To, to, because I see people now with long COVID and they came back to me going, like, for example, when I was suffering from fatigue, I'd have a couple of friends that maybe, oh, yeah, I didn't sleep very well last night. I know exactly how you feel. And you just didn't say anything. But, <laughs> but then coming back to me, even when they've just had COVID and recovered, is that that level of fatigue, suddenly, I realise what you yeah. went through. Exactly. And it's like, well, that's, it's a really hard lesson. I don't want you to be ill, but I am actually, there's part of me quite grateful that you've experienced that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and actually learn to recognise it. So part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to to kind of skip that phase where people could actually learn about it and listen without having to, <laughs> to become chronically ill themselves, which for me would be an ideal outcome. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I'm I'm laughing about all of this now because I know you understand it, but it's, it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And the longer the pandemic rolls on and the longer we roll on in this phase of really terrible denial as well, the more horrific I find it. You know, every year, every time I speak to any of my friends who are in a similar position, we all say this is the worst stage yet. And it's because of the level of, of societal denial that's around it that um, you literally feel like you're banging your head on a wall continually telling people that there are consequences to their actions. And it shouldn't be revelatory to say that. And also to say that we we need societal-wide resistance. And so I said resistance and I, me I meant resilience, but that was quite a good thing. Yes, no, I... <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We need we need resilience at a societal level if we are to survive any of the coming things. You know, if we are to survive the pandemic, if we're to survive climate change, we can't be going, oh, as the newspapers have done this week, saying, oh, but it's OK. You can learn to tolerate higher temperatures. How is that an answer to anything? Mm. Yes. And I I suppose the first, well, it feels like for me, the first stage is actually getting people to listen and have that awareness of just how serious it can be, particularly yeah, thinking definitely. of like chronic illness. I mean, I one thing that struck me from your book as well, and something that I recognise is, I mean, it at times it felt like it could be written by a medical professional, because you'd obviously researched a lot, which I had to do. So... For example, like when I had I had such bad insomnia, but during the night is when I would research papers and try and link my symptoms. I'd I'd come to some similar conclusions that this hypermobility keeps coming up. I've been hypermobile since I was very young and there's pots and I still had that and things. So, I mean, I think at one point you do say that being chronically ill is a full-time job and I really feel that. And that's perhaps something that 
again, I haven't heard talked about much that how much of an expert you become. I mean, was was that taking up a lot of time? Was it, I guess you'd had that since quite a young age as well. Do you feel like you became an expert before you found the experts? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, they, they talk about expert patients in, in mm. um, illness um, groups as well. And you, you do have to become an expert patient when you have a, a Often people talk about it in terms of rare diseases, but both of my conditions are actually very common, but very poorly understood, um, which is another of the reasons why I wanted to write about them, because there's probably a, an enormous amount of people out there who are um, experiencing chronic symptoms and don't know that actually they're they're one of these um, quite common but poorly diagnosed conditions. So you become an expert patient because you have no choice. For me, it became easier as I got older because I'd also learned to be a researcher in other aspects of my life. So I started uh, my academic career with doing an English literature degree and as a dyslexic person as well, I was quite terrified of the university library. So I, <laughs> I kind of got through my first degree without doing almost any secondary reading, but also discovered I was dyslexic during that time as well and started to kind of understand how to approach that differently. But then by the time I ended up doing my MA and then my PhD, I was that part of that was training to be a researcher and training to sieve information, to find information and to synthesize that information. And that's been incredibly useful for me actually as a patient. And I'm always very aware of that, that something... I kept saying over and over again when I was in my early 30s going through these terrible experiences trying to get to a diagnosis in extraordinary pain and um, having these absolutely terrible dysautonomia symptoms as well where I'd find I had to lie down in the street because I, I couldn't stand up and I'd have doctors telling me there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. What I kept coming back to all the time was I am a highly educated middle class white woman. If I am struggling this much with this system, how is anybody else managing anything? You know, if I can go in there and say to doctors, use the language that they want to use to talk about these things. And they're still saying, oh, you're just a silly woman who's too sensitive. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm nodding. I'm nodding because I'm thinking the same. For 14 years, I was a human rights lawyer. And so, again, I come with that privilege of education and being a middle class white woman. And and it, it's given me the chance that I could research, I could access things and understand them and skim read them and get what I needed. But you're right. If if we can't be heard and believed and understood, then it's really shows such a gap in the system, doesn't it? It really does. And there's another side of that, of course, that some of the problems I had when I was a teenager were directly because I was a clever girl and that was seen as pathological in itself, which was something I had to uh, go through with a legal read with this book was, you know, could I could I actually say that, that that was, is that in some way dangerous to admit that, that that's what doctors were saying to me and it's like I, I had to go back to the lawyers and go no literally they've written dozens and dozens of research papers about how teenage girls cannot be trusted so 
the problem is that they think that that's a good thing and that that's good medical research. I think that's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) And that people shouldn't be assuming that girls just existing are are pathological. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I definitely feel that too from from knowing what I know now and and the the appointments that I had with doctors as a teenage girl and yeah, being sent away. Yeah. Yeah, and just being <laughs> No, no, it's not nothing nothing relevant in that you keep you can't stand up for any length of time and yeah. just faint. <laughs> yeah, that's just what it's like to be a girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I did wonder when I was reading your book was, because I don't think you talked about it, you seemed to get to a place of acceptance that this is a, a genetic disorder and it and it's part of you and your, your makeup. And I still feel quite a lot of envy at times and jealousy and seeing people do things that I haven't had the chance to do. And I just wondered whether that was something that you accepted or if you did feel those emotions and how you dealt with them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel those emotions and that sense of um, kind of that particular sense of FOMO, the chronic illness brings. Oh, okay. I'm quite, again, I wish you didn't, but I'm quite glad that you do. Um, I I think particularly it's something I've thought about a lot this last few years through the pandemic as well that the um, the the back to normalness of people going mm. back to blithely going back to a 2019 life. Um, whilst at the same time I feel like I'm kind of banging on the glass, going, "No, don't do it! <laughs> You're about to join me." <laughs> Um, but but there is another part of me, obviously, that would love to be blithely going around, going to music festivals and going to see Barbie at the cinema without a mask um, and doing all of those things, staying in friends' houses, all the things that I, I used to, with my middling health privilege, be able to enjoy to a certain extent. But I also know what the consequences of, of that would be for me. So it it stops me from doing it. But I think acceptance is a really difficult thing. And it's something that I try to touch on in in the book as well, that there's one point where I do say, is acceptance also a kind of trick? Because I do think there is a degree to which we can be encouraged to accept a level of existence, which isn't what we should be accepting, especially when chronic illnesses are dealt with in the way that they are dealt with currently, where we are just sent away to deal with it by ourselves. And this is what I mean by a wider resilience, which is nothing to do with ourselves as individuals, you know, not a you do you resilience, but a wider societal resilience, that if we're just leaving everybody to deal with themselves and just going, you just have to accept that, I think that's a, I think that's a problem that there are some things that we shouldn't accept and we shouldn't accept to be left alone to manage our own symptoms because there's no adequate health care for us um, or to be diagnosed and then kind of left in a basically in a, a holding pen for years, which is what happens to a lot of people as well. But that's different to the kind of daily acceptance that I think we need to develop within ourselves to deal with our reality, which is within that system that doesn't care about us, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So there's 
a, a particular kind of acceptance that has to to come with trying to survive the best way that we can within a system which is essentially hostile to us. And that's what I'm trying to do all the time, whilst also trying to encourage other people to think maybe we could change this system so it's slightly less hostile so that we could actually do more so that people with chronic illness don't have to languish in the dark alone and that we can be part of society again because that's what most of us want and that's what most of us want she says (laughs) like anyone's going actually no I just want to languish in the dark alone with my terrible symptoms being ignored by everybody I, it it doesn't have to be the way that it is. I think that that's something that I've become very clear about the last few years and which is both counter, but also part of acceptance in a different way, I think. Mm, I always found that I was, and this is more on a personal level rather than talking about those systems, but I kind of, I, I had a dance between having a lot of hope that I would get better, but also feeling that that created a lot of disappointment. So maybe it would be better if I just accepted this was my life now. And I never quite, I, I was always between the two. And I think what, what for me, what the difference was, is, is how much energy I had. And if I had enough energy for hope, I'd lie on the side of hope. And if I'd run out of energy, then it really would be just trying to accept it. Um, but it was, yeah, something that I wrestled with for all the time that I was chronically ill. And I just wondered, you know, if we look at your conditions, it will say it is a non-curable illness. And I just wondered whether we need to say, well, it's not curable yet. But do you have hope that there will be in your lifetime a way that you can alleviate all the symptoms? I Well, th- this is a difficult thing, isn't it? I I don't expect that that will happen Um, I would love it if there were ways to alleviate some of the symptoms. What I can't see happening as a way, because because of the particular circumstances of knowing that my conditions are genetic as well, and that did change the way that I thought about some of this, that, as I say in the book, you know, these conditions are in me at some of the smallest level, in every of my cells, But that doesn't mean that those genes needed to express themselves in the way that they express themselves or that certain damages needed to happen, which have happened. And this is where I think early diagnosis comes into play, but also disease management (laughs) as well. So that sense that we're left alone to to deal with conditions, even when we know what those conditions are and we know what, what could help them, what can manage them better. So often we're left without help that could be there as well. So I have very complicated feelings about that. And as I say in the book, I don't know how I'd feel actually if someone did turn around to me tomorrow and say, well, actually we've developed this miracle cure and we could edit your genes and remove these conditions from you. Do you want that? Um, And I don't know how I'd, I'd feel about that. I don't know what my response would be. Because I would obviously love to experience life without the level of pain and fatigue that are part of my daily existence and every part of of my daily existence. But I also would quite like to remain myself. And I think that's a really 
difficult, tricky question. And one of the reasons, you know, I joked about binge watching sci-fi earlier, but it is, I think, one of the reasons why I am drawn to uh, a lot of sci-fi that does think about those questions about what makes us us, um, in in particular, um, what makes us the version of, of us that we are. And so much of who I am is informed by my illness experiences, as well as by all the other things that are in my genetic code that might be disappeared if what makes me ill was disappeared as well. So there could be a version of me who wasn't ill, but she wouldn't be me. She'd be somebody different. And I'm very aware of that and very intrigued by that. On a more basic level, would I like my daily existence to be easier? Heck yes, of course I would. Um, I definitely like symptom alleviation. I'd like more appropriate painkillers. I'd like the chance to try different kinds of painkillers without risking the painkillers I'm on. I'd like better ongoing treatment of my joints and better monitoring of my internal organs. I'd like better care for my dysautonomia, which is completely abandoned. I'd like more options to deal with my gastroparesis. I'd like someone to pay attention to some of my hormonal disruption, which again is completely not treated at all. At the moment, I've been going through another long failed diagnostic process trying to work out what's going on with a chronic folliculitis that I've developed in the last few years, which again is hopelessly looping back and forth and back and forth and, and getting nowhere. I'd love help with all of these small things, which are expressions, I suppose, of some of my underlying conditions. And to have those better dealt with, that would be brilliant in so many ways. But that still wouldn't be a cure. That would be treatment, which is different. And I think separating those two things out and thinking we can treat stuff even if we can't cure it and not to leave people without treatment because there is no cure seems like a really medical fundament to me and yet doesn't really happen for most people. One thing that you didn't touch on on the book, but I just wondered because it was part of my journey, was exploring different systems of medicine. So I saw Chinese doctors and for a long time was successfully treated through acupuncture. I mean, I also tried many, many other things, which I'm sure you did as well. <laughs> the shamanic drumming, <laughs> lots of yoga to the point where I'm now a yoga teacher. And I mean, I spent thousands of pounds and got into debt because I was seeking alternatives alternative systems but also um private um western doctors as well just because my gps were just like no you there's nothing wrong we're not going to um refer you anywhere so i just wondered whether you'd looked at anything else during your long <laughs> journey yeah. well when i was a teenager i definitely did and this is one of these questions about class privilege mm. um and about economics as well isn't it that um in my middle-class household growing up, when we didn't get help from the doctors, we did seek other help and my parents could pay for that. Um, none of it was particularly helpful, I have to say. Some of it was very pleasant. Like I had lots of reflexology, which I really liked. Oh, yes, um, I forgot about my Reiki as well. That was yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I would love reflexology all the time now as well. The problem is that as someone who's been chronically ill for their entire life, I have a very low income because I can't work all the time. 
And the work that I do is also not very well remunerated as well. So having said I have a lot of middle class privilege, I also um, am a low income disabled person and I can't afford alternative treatments. So something that I know helps me a lot, for instance, is massage because I get terrible muscle cramps, but I can't afford massage. Um, one of the problems that I do talk about briefly in the book is the fact that you can get brief courses of helpful treatments on the NHS. So I had six sessions of hydrotherapy. In and then you were sorted? Yeah, oh, six <laughs> sessions. Great. That would have really helped if, say, I'd broken my leg again and I needed to recover from that. But that wasn't going to be helpful for something that is just an ongoing fact of my life. Um and the same with physiotherapy as well, that you can kind of get six sessions on the NHS and, and then it disappears. I did get offered acupuncture on the NHS just around the time of my diagnosis. And it was my physiotherapist at the local GP who suggested it, who was also the person who kind of kickstarted my diagnosis by saying, do you see anyone about your hypermobility? Um, so shout out to her. She's fantastic. But she stopped me having acupuncture after three sessions because it was setting off my dysautonomia. And she was so worried <laughs> about my response. I was loving it. But she was very, very concerned about how I was responding. And then was like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. So I've, I've sought different things if and when I could afford them. Um and a lot of those kind of complementary therapies, I find really helpful in managing symptoms when they're not managed in any other ways. So particularly massage for me, I, I find really, really helpful. Um, but I just can't afford it most of the time. And um, in recent years as well, most of those things have been kind of prohibitive from a COVID safety viewpoint as well. So it it just becomes more and more difficult to even access therapies that might help along the way. Yes. And I suppose that goes back into that same when we were first talking about swimming and then the nature cure. And I suppose it's none of these are cures at all, are they? It's just whatever helps you manage um, day to day. I wondered what your relationship was with your body was now, because it seems to change throughout the book. And there's some particularly of your earlier diary entries where you feel quite it came across quite hostile to like, why is this happening? And what are you doing? And um, yeah, I wonder, do you feel let down by your body? Or did that change when you got your diagnosis and realised that it was there all along? I, I try to not feel let down by my body. I think my body and I have a difficult working relationship. And we're always trying to build on that and uh, to communicate with each other more effectively. Sometimes it chooses to communicate with me by throwing itself on the floor <laughs> or deciding to misfunction at particular times. And I, I think I, I kind of see my body a little bit like uh, an animal that I'm caring for or that I live alongside uh, as well, which I don't fully understand and sometimes I don't listen to. So I think of it a bit like my cat in a way, like, you know, my body is trying to tell me something. I'm not listening to it. And we're both going to suffer <laughs> if, if I'm not listening to it very well. So I've definitely gone from thinking about my body as an enemy that is trying to do me harm 
and that I'm kind of stuck inside in some way when I was younger to realizing that we have to live alongside each other and that we have to find a, a better way to do that for both of us. But it is a difficult relationship. And I do think of myself as slightly separate, I suppose, um, from my body, even though I know that that is a construct in a lot of ways. And as I say, it's a it's a working relationship. It's a relationship I'm working on. I have different feelings about it on different days. I had a really bad day yesterday and was quite cross at my body for producing that day on my birthday as well. You know, it just felt <laughs> me. Um, but maybe also I needed a day where I wasn't doing anything. And that's what my body was trying to tell me at that point. So we're working on our communication strategies. And <laughs> maybe in 10 years time, I'll have learned more from that uh, as well. I just think it's a, it's an ongoing process and an ongoing learning process as well. And the idea that we can suddenly know what to do with that, I think, is um a beautiful concept, but entirely not my experience of being alive either. <laughs> yes. And I thought you really explore this throughout the book, particularly when we went down the same route that I'd gone down with. Maybe it's just unresolved trauma that's coming out in these physical ways and you just need to, you know, do shake your body and you'll be fine and things like that, which is definitely something that I'd explored as well. And I quite... I suppose it's, it is has been complex. Sometimes it helps me to see my body as something quite separate. And sometimes it helps me to think of this is all me. It's all me in here. So. Well, we, we exist in, in and with each other and we can't exist out with each other. I, th I think that's something that I think is, is really helpful to think about. That I, I do, I think I write in the book that I think of the body as a kind of vessel that I'm mm. sailing along in. And, you know, sometimes I think we all have these thoughts that it, it would be nice to kind of be free of that for, for a bit in some ways. But it's a fact of our existence that um, we have to live with each other. And if we can get on with that a bit better, <laughs> it'd mm. be quite nice, I think. Yes, I used to have fantasies that I could just swap bodies and have a break. <laughs> just just take these take this body for a, for a day. And I'm sorry. Also, you think that with doctors all the time as well, don't you? That the number of times I, I've, I've sat in one of these consulting rooms with a doctor telling me that I was just um, being too sensitive and that probably I wasn't feeling pain at all. I was feeling slight discomfort. Um, and the number of times you, I've sat there thinking, if we could just do a mind swap right now, <laughs> that would be really useful. Yes. And when I when I so after my chronic illness, I then had this diagnosis of osteoarthritis, and it was absolutely bewildering to be sat in front of a consultant going, "Yes, I can see why you've got pain, and yes, we're going to do this." And I was just years and years of not being believed or it being minimised. I was just could not <laughs> understand that somebody was actually listening and agreed, and the evidence agreed with what what I had been saying. It still doesn't actually resolve anything in a way, does it? You know, there's there's things that you can do um, that can alleviate some of it, but then you're still in the end in your body. <laughs> you are, but I, I found it so powerful to have somebody actually listen mm. 
somebody in power like kind of um in the medical profession to actually agree with what I was saying I was so used to it to just not being heard or listened to and I, I think you put that in the book actually I think did you say like going to the doctor is not a neutral act or something like that which I I really felt that beyond my chronic illness for other things for very simple things just going to get some repeat prescription painkillers or something from the doctor was was actually quite difficult for me to do and I suppose something I don't talk about in in the book because as with several things that I don't talk about because I don't have a diagnosis for them but I think most people who have chronic health conditions and who have experienced this kind of medical gaslighting do have some degree or other of post-traumatic stress disorder as well and I'm very aware of that every time I go to the doctor Mm. that um the panic rises uh, oh yeah yeah and that's definitely something that people around me and my partner just did don't understand (laughs) yeah yeah because if you haven't been through it you you don't know what it's like to be treated in that way either. Well, I think that your book's such an important piece of work for all that it does reveal and that insight that it gives to people. I know I've kept you for a while, but just one last question was about the open mountain and the nature writing. And I just feel for all the reasons that we've just spoken about, but how important it is to have this diversity of voices in nature, writing and other areas of writing. But I just wondered if you could tell me what that entails, your project that you're doing. Is it part of the Kendall Mountain Festival? And Yeah, it, and it's actually on hold at the moment. So oh, no. What's happening with it now? Um, because we don't have any funding, sadly. So we had three years where we ran this project and this event series as part of Kendall Mountain Festival, which was aimed at thinking about voices which are kind of marginalised from those those discourses for various reasons. And it did start, it was um, Kate Davis, who is a disabled poet who also lives in Cumbria, so um, in South Cumbria, who who originated the idea um, and then brought me in as well. Um, and then we extended it out because we thought there are so many voices that are missing from traditional nature writing as well. So for whatever reason, whether you're excluded because of disability or race or ethnicity or gender um, or class, income, all of these different factors that um, can mean that you're your voice and your not experience is not reflected or heard. We wanted to do the little bit that we could do because we were working very much on a shoestring to try and include more voices in that. And we had three fantastic years where we brought different writers in and it was just so fruitful and so brilliant, but I'm not quite sure what's happening with that going forward. But having said that, I think that the, arena of nature writing is starting to shift on that so there have been some great books this year written by people who are disabled or chronically ill um, which definitely are, are, are like mine they're a kind of hybrid of memoir and nature writing so there's a wonderful book called sea bean by sally hubbard which came out earlier in the year which is about her experience of rheumatoid arthritis and living in Shetland. And then there's a beautiful book by Vic Bennett, who used to live in Cumbria, but now lives in Orkney, called All My Wild Mothers, 
which is about lots of different things, but but partly about um, grief and loss and growing a garden when you don't own your home as well. And then there's my book, obviously. But in October, there's the first ever UK anthology of nature writing by disabled and chronically ill writers coming out as well. It's coming out with Footnote Press. It's called Moving Mountains, and it's edited by Louise Kenwood. And that's going to be an extraordinary collection, which brings together lots of different perspectives on this. And I think it's it's really important, particularly because, as I've said in this discussion, so much of the population has experience of disability and of chronic illness. And unfortunately, with the way the pandemic is going, that that's only going to get bigger as well. And there just aren't those voices out there published that show us how to manage some of those ideas and think about some of those ideas and think, rethink particularly, I think, our relationship with nature and with the non-human world um, to shift away from, from this idea, this transactional idea of nature as curative or that it's part of our wellness regime, that we need to go and do our thing in nature and then we'll be fine. Um, and to think about something that is more um, symbiotic in a different way. Yes, and I think one of the things you also explored at the end of the book, or, or paraphrasing from others maybe, was about that lone enraptured male and that sense of, for me, it's one of the things about that put me off sharing my writing and my story was that there was no big, wonderful achievement at the end. There wasn't really any sort of closure. It was just messy and ongoing. And I thought, who wants to read about that? But it feels like there's more voices and more stories that don't have that. We're all going to climb Everest at the end. <laughs> well, and, and I think as well, you know, life is messy and ongoing. <laughs> Really, the only end point is the end of life, isn't it? And I, I think we need to shift the way we think about some of those those narratives and those kind of narrative curves as well, particularly in nonfiction, because there's no need to have that kind of um, triumphant ending um, in a nonfiction book, is there? Especially one that's actually about you know walking or running or swimming or something. We don't we don't <laughs> need it to have that like. And then I reached the pinnacle of all existence <laughs> moment. <laughs> no, and actually, I find that you know not inspiring for me, being where I am and the times that I've been ill and the limits that I have. It, it just makes me feel worse, actually. <laughs> exactly, and and I think because nature writing particularly in Britain has been such a, a narrow field um, and even the idea even using that word field um, brings forth the idea that you have to do kind of field work in order to do that kind of writing as well which is excluding of so many different people for so many different reasons it was Kathleen Jamie who coined that term lone and rapture. Oh, that's it. Yes. I thought it wasn't, yeah. it was yeah. in quotation marks when I'd read it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's written so amazingly about particularly about the domestic and uh, nature writing and how, which comes back to Vic's book as well, you know, how you, you end up with snatches of your experience of um, nature because you're doing other stuff as well and how that actually fits into a life. And I think we all need a relationship with the natural world and the more than human world. 
And mo- for most of us, that's going to be in snatches. It's not going to be having some epic adventure or eating an armadillo or something kind of very bare grills. Um, it's going to be much smaller and quieter and more every day than that. And we need to see those things as triumphal as well, actually. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the the most healing things when I was ill was watching the birds in my garden on the bird feeder. And that's something that you you mentioned in your book. And I just felt that so much that that was such a massive part for me when I when I couldn't get out and do do anything. So uh, thank you, Polly. I could talk to you all day and I feel like I have. So thank you so much for your time. And I'll put a link to your book in the show notes as well. But where's the best place to follow you? So you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram as at Polly Rowena. On Twitter, you can find me expressing lots of opinions and probably talking about some sci-fi I've been binge watching as well. Uh, and on Instagram, you can see some nice pictures. I've seen. <laughs> I like the balance of both. Yeah, which side of me you want to go for there? <laughs> and have you sent the book to your doctors or do you want me to do that? Because I really like it. <laughs> yeah, you should, shouldn't you? Um, I have thought about it and I haven't done it and I don't know why not, actually. I think that's a really interesting question to bring up because one of the things that happened after my diagnosis that the uh, the professor who diagnosed me with Erlos Danlos did write to some of the doctors who'd said awful things to me and told them about my diagnosis. And I thought that was the most amazing act to do. Oh, wow. Um, that, that he wrote to them specifically and said, look, you've been ignoring this. Um, and I did think about then sending my book as a <laughs> as a further note. Oh my god, I've thought about it so much with mine. Yeah, I half worried they'd sue me. <laughs> In a twist of fate, it turns out my ex GP has now got the allotment next to me, so I'm currently avoiding him. But maybe I'll drop a copy of my book there on the allotment. Maybe you should. Maybe you should <laughs> Dug into the potatoes or something. Yeah. Polly thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and your book it's fantastic so thank you for writing that it's a really important voice and it really helped me as well so when I read it so you've helped one person but I'm sure hundreds and hundreds of others thank you it's been a joy and it's been particularly nice to be able to laugh about some of these things with someone who I know understands (laughs) yes Um, if I'd uh, you know tried to speak to you ten years ago or wherever it was that I was ill, I would not be laughing. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, um, yes, I, I'm sure that everybody will get an insight from your book, whether it's people that are chronically ill or people that have been lucky enough not to experience that in their life. And fingers crossed, they don't. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.